Hi everybody, and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us, and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. As always, we love hearing your feedback. With the last episode of the Golders podcast, it was great to hear so many positive comments come back. If you are enjoying the podcast, remember to rate and review it on whatever listening platform you use. And if you want to get hold of us again, we're available on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast and on our website at www.thegolddustcoach.com. Now, on today's podcast, we've got somebody that achieved something that most people would probably think is impossible. Only just over 5,000 people have ever summited Mount Everest, and considering there's just short of 8 billion people on the planet, you're certainly in a select group if you ever stand on the highest point in the world. Not only did today's guest summit Mount Everest, but he also had some serious issues on both his ascent and his descent from the top of the world. Nick Hollis has not only climbed Everest, but he's one of an even smaller group that has summited the seven highest points on each continent in the world. And he's now venturing on his new task called the 721 Challenge. Listen in to find out more about this inspirational story. Hi, Nick. How are you? Hi, Keith. Yeah, doing really well, thank you. Nick, we're just going to really jump straight into this. You're, as we've mentioned, one of only a handful of people in the world that's ever completed the Seven Summit Challenge. But based off our previous conversations, we know that you weren't always a mountaineer and adventurer. You went to college and then ended up in the corporate world working for Hewlett Packard. At what point for you did mountaineering and and the adventure side of what you do become the mainstay in your life and actually replace the day job? Such a great question. So for many years, I juggled two lives, my life as an adventurer and my life in the corporate world. Uh, Initially, I had a job for an American software company. I did five years at 3M and a 10-year stint with Hewlett-Packard. And as time went on, I got more and more serious about the mountaineering. Uh, I got better at it, mostly through making mistakes, which I think is how we all learn anyway. Uh, And it got to the point where something had to give. And I had in the back of my mind an idea and I'd bounce it around with friends and fellow mountaineers saying, at some point, I'm going to get out of this corporate world and do something full time, set up my own adventure company. I wasn't quite sure what that was going to be, what it was going to look like. But I did some background work and I invested in myself. I gained a number of mountaineering qualifications, instructor type qualifications, which meant when I did come out, I wasn't starting from scratch. I I did have some background. Also, during my time in the corporate world, I would take groups of people, business teams, not charge them, but take them out into the mountains. And I gained a lot of experience of leadership uh, through doing that. And it came to a point, this was nine years ago, where I was getting really, really burnt out. I was starting to lose the love and the enthusiasm for the corporate world. And also I was, the the clock was ticking and it was getting to the point where if I didn't do it now, I was never going to do it. 
And I took the decision, make the plunge and arranged a meeting with my management team and sat down and said, guys, I'm off. I'm going to leave uh, to pursue what I really love in life. I think they were take, a little bit taken aback. Um, they offered me a, a one year, which grew to a two year sabbatical. And I left the organization and I've never gone back. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was a huge decision at the time and definitely a life changing, life defining decision, but not one that I regret for a minute. It, it's something that fascinates me. I love the, the movies and the documentaries about mountaineering, climbing, especially in Nepal, in the Himalayas, climbing those monstrous mountains you've mentioned about Everest I'd I'd just I want to I'm going to ask can you take us through the that experience a step-by-step experience of when you actually climbed Everest yeah of course I can now I climbed Everest in 2019 uh May 2019 because the thing with with Everest is there's a season and uh, and, and the vast, vast majority of climbs take place in, in May or June. The rest of the year, Everest sits in a jet stream. Uh, so you're sitting in 100 to 200 mile an hour winds. There's no scope to climb it outside of that. And for me, I always had, a, I suppose, initially a fascination with Everest. I didn't think when I, in my younger years, I'd ever actually climb it. I thought, well, that's for extraordinary people. And I was just this ordinary guy. Um, but... The first step was Kilimanjaro. And as I said at the start, I then went on this journey climbing ever higher, ever harder mountains. And it got to the point where there was just Everest left to climb uh, to complete the seven summits. And after a couple of false starts on Everest, I made the commitment to climb it in May, as I said, in 2019 season. So what does it take to climb Everest? Well, people talk a lot about fitness, but that wasn't a problem for me. By this point, my job was taking people in the mountains. I was in the mountain day in, day out. So I I was getting all the training I needed. The technical skills, I'm a climbing instructor. I spend a lot of time rock climbing and doing some more technical-based stuff. So again, there wasn't really anything that I needed to learn on the technical side of it. So really, to climb Everest, you need to get a permit, which at that point is very easy to do. Um, After the 2019 season, where I think 13 people sadly lost their lives that's not so straightforward and that's a good thing you now need to be able to prove to the Nepalese government that you've got some competence you've got some previous experience before they'll allow you onto the mountain so you need to get a permit you need to get a flight to Nepal and then you need to get some kind of infrastructure now I'm really lucky I've been running uh, treks in Nepal for many years so I've got an established agent that I work with out in Nepal, and also uh, a climbing Sherpa by the name of Pemba, an absolutely wonderful guy who I've worked with for the last seven years, leading treks, we've climbed together. Um, So for me, it was really simple. It was a case of phone Pemba. Look, Pemba, I want to climb Everest. Are you in? Do you want to do it together? Yeah, brilliant. He was in. Book a flight to Nepal, get the permit sorted, and then speak to the agent. And the agent's important because they provide the infrastructure. They provide, get the tents into base camp for you. They'll get food sorted for you. Now, for me, I did it on the cheap. Most people will spend somewhere between fifty dollars and $100,000 to climb Everest. I think I spent about $20,000. Um, so what did that mean? It meant I compromised on certain luxuries. Um, I compromised on quality of food. But there were things I didn't compromise on. One was you know, availability of oxygen. 
I knew working with Pemba, I had a world-class climbing Sherpa to climb with. Um, and being, I suppose you could describe me as an independent mountaineer, I didn't need that much stuff. That's a big difference to perhaps some more inexperienced mountaineers that are going to climb Everest where you need a lot more support. You need a lot more mollycoddle in. And that's basically, yeah, other things you need to climb Everest is time because the whole expedition takes uh, upwards of two months. So you need to find that slot in your, in your diary. Um, and you need to have a bit of a, give yourself a bit of a talking to because it is a risky game. It really is a risky game. And, and, and perhaps I underestimated the risk, but having climbed Everest, I now appreciate the risk. It's not technically very hard, but there's a lot of areas where you can come unstuck on Everest. For a start, it's ridiculously high. I mean, obviously it's the highest mountain in the world, but when you're up there, you realize you are so far from civilization. You are so far from any form of rescue. Um, so you need to be mentally prepared and, and also mentally willing to pay the ultimate price. Because if you're embarking on Everest climb, there is a real reality that you might not come back from it. So I think once you've got all of those components together, it's just a question of getting out there and getting on the mountain and um, and and. And once you're on the mountain itself, the machine takes over. And what do I mean by that is you've got, you get caught up, all the teams are doing similar things. They're acclimatizing. That's the first stage of climbing Everest. You need to prepare the body to the higher altitudes. And, and the way you prepare the body is by climbing high, triggering the body to produce more red blood cells by straining it, and then returning to base camp to rest and recover and allow the body to do its thing, which is to produce more red blood cells, the oxygen carriers. And that's really for me where the Everest climb starts, base camp. Up until that point, it's a trek. And again, many of your listeners certainly have heard of the Everest base camp trek and some of them may have done it. That's the point where the trekkers get the photo. They go back down and achieve their lifetime goal, if that's what it was. But for us as mountaineers, that's where it starts. We get to base camp and that's the starting point for the climb. You mentioned challenges there, Nick. I know uh, six, seven years ago, I, I was intending to go to base camp. That would have been my mountain. And due to uh, an injury uh, at the time, it prevented me from, from making that trek. But in addition to that, some of the challenges that you face from base camp to the summit of Everest, uh, you had a 36-hour asc ascent with snow blindness and failing oxygen systems in the death zone. Now that must, have been, that must have been a slightly different experience to anything that you've encountered in the past. Yeah, certainly some of it was, gosh. Um, where to start with that one? So the challenges on Everest, I mean, you're confronted with a major challenge as soon as you leave base camp itself, because you've got this thing called the Kumbu Glacier, the Kumbu Ice Wall to negotiate. And that's the bit where you may have seen on TV footage where you've got the ladders spanning these enormous crevasses. Um, and you need to go through that. And you need to go through that thing typically eight times because when you're doing these rotations, this acclimatization phase, you have to go through it to get high and then come back through it on the retreat to base camp. So that's danger area number one. You could very, very easily come unstuck in that section. And the reason is, the best way I could describe that Kumbu ice wall is imagine a humongous Jenga set where you've got blocks made of ice the size of large buildings. And this thing is moving. It's not static, but it's moving a couple of meters a day. And that means it's unstable. So you've got to get through this thing. And that's always, you know, a little bit hairy. Um, 
For me, though, the greatest challenge came on summit day. And there were a number of reasons for that. Firstly, uh, 2019 was, was quite a notorious climbing season for Everest. What drove that is the number of climbers that were trying to climb it, the weather window, which was only three days long. There was one earlier in the season, which some people managed to sneak up and tag it, but the main weather window was just three days long. And then you also had in that mix, you had inexperienced climbers. I was amazed on Everest to see that there were people trying to climb it that had very, very little mountaineering experience. And it, it kind of blew my mind, but it was also pretty frustrating because those guys, and don't take this the wrong way, but they hadn't earned the right to be on Everest and they were causing problems. Problems in the sense of they were very slow on the technical ground and that was creating bottlenecks, that was creating traffic jams. Now for me, we arrived, Everest has got a number of camps on it. So you start at base camp, you've got camp one at the top of the Kumbu Icefall, you've then got camp two. From camp two, you, there's a very steep climb up a face called the Lhotse face. And halfway up that face is camp three. And from there, you travel up to camp four. And camp four is otherwise known as the South Col. And that's the launch pad for the summit. That's the last place you can put a tent before you make your summit bid. And when we arrived, uh, Pember and I, at the South Col on the 21st of May, we were pretty concerned about the volume of climbers that were also coming up the hill. But also when we arrived, the weather had deteriorated and it hadn't been forecast. The weather had closed in, the winds were very strong. And this presented us with a decision to make. And the decision was, did we climb that night in bad weather, or did we go into our tents, use up oxygen supplies, spend a night, and then climb the following day? But we discovered that the majority of the mountaineers were going to do the second. They were gonna go into their tents on oxygen because they didn't fancy these tough conditions, and they were gonna climb it the following day. So we knew that the following day was gonna be an unmitigated disaster. And the reason for that is there were gonna be too many people on the higher section of Everest. Um, and that was, that was gonna lead to inevitable consequences. So Pember and I decided it was gonna be less risky to actually climb that night, just three hours having after arriving at the South Col, um, than it was to get caught up in traffic the following day. And that meant that we had to climb in some tough conditions. So we got our stuff together and it was 9 p.m. I started. And at that point, I actually was climbing alone because Pemba got pulled into another team um, to help them. So I was actually climbing on my own. About 50 mountaineers took the same decision as Pemba and I to go for the tough conditions to avoid the crowds. And the good thing is these were the strong mountaineers. These were the kind of cream of the crop. Um, so I left my tent at 9 p.m. I remember within five minutes, I'd encountered a, a dead body. Uh, not a body from years gone by, but a body that somebody that had died that morning. And that's really not what you need when you're just setting off on your summit attempt in bad weather on Everest. Um, and after about an hour um, of, from leaving my tent, two things happened. One, Pemba caught me up because uh, the Nepalese, you know, we talk about heroes. I'm not a hero. The Sherpa are the heroes. I mean, these guys are just extraordinarily strong at the higher altitude. So he caught up with me. But also throughout that night, that first hour, I seemed to be going pretty well. I seemed to be faster than the other mountaineers and I was overtaking them. So it ended up that Pemba caught up with me and I overtook a climber and realized that there was no one else ahead. I had the whole Everest myself. 
So Pember and I took turns, what's called breaking trail in mountaineering, because there was no path, there was no trail, all the old ropes were buried in, in fresh snow. So to get up the thing, we had to wade through snow. And it's, you know, it's tiring at sea level, but at 8,200 meters, it's utterly exhausted, but there was no option. So we battled up to a place called the balcony, and the balcony is in, considered by mountaineers to be the halfway point on the Everest summit. We got to the balcony, we we're quite a long way ahead of the other climbers at this stage. And, and Pember and I actually exchanged our first words. And I said, look, what do you want to do here? He said, I'm pretty tired. Let's wait for the other mountaineers to catch us up and they can help us break snow trail wade through the snow on the next section. But after half an hour, we were getting brassically cold and I was getting pretty concerned about frostbite at this stage. And you know, my toes were getting a bit numb. I was doing all the things that we do, wiggle them and what have you. But I, I got to the point where we had to move. So I called Pemba and Pemba's smoking a cigarette. I mean, we're at 8,450 metres. This is an example of, of just how incredible these Sherpa are. He's sitting down having a cigarette. Uh, I said, come on, let's go. And as we were making our way across a ridge towards the bottom of uh, the South Summit, uh, my oxygen system blocked up. Uh, I was trying to breathe in and I couldn't get any, any air into, into my mouth. It was just wrapping around my face. And my heart sank at that point. I thought, crikey, we're not, you know, we need to go down. And also we, I'm going to need to get off this thing without oxygen. And that is going to be a big challenge. But when Pemba called up with me and I explained the problem and he was super cool, he just said, don't worry, I can fix it. And he took a deep breath and blew into the valve on the side of my, my mask. And, and it did two things. It, it freed the, uh, the blockage, uh, but it also meant I got a, a mouthful of Pemba's cigarette breath, which was pretty gross at one o'clock in the morning uh, at 8,400 meters. But, um, but it worked and that's what counted. And we, we pushed on there and we were able to, we're able to continue, but at the bottom of the, 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 the climb up to the south summit, um, it happened again. And this time, Pemba's breath couldn't clear the valve. Uh, and I, it, was, it was quite a nervy moment, really. It was one of those high pressure moments where you're thinking, oh God, what are we going to do? Uh, but again, Pemba was super cool. He just said, don't worry, I know how to fix it. Give me your mask. I'm thinking, it's like two o'clock in the morning. There's this howling wind. We're on head torches, literally leant against this ridge. And I handed in my mask and he then just took it a bit, literally took it thing to pieces. And I'm using my mitts um, to hold these bits to stop them blowing away. And, uh, but, but, but he did it. He cleared the blockage. He put it all back together and handed it to me. Uh, and I can breathe again. And it goes to show, you know, no matter how, how much of a scrape you're in, if you can stay cool, keep a cool head, you'll find a solution. And that's really what Pemba did. It was quite extraordinary that he was able to think so clearly under so much pressure. From that point, it's a very steep climb up to the South Summit. Um, I led the way up and, um, and that's quite tough. And I remember it takes about an hour and a half of slogging, lots of snow, ice and rock. And when I arrived then in the South Summit, probably about four o'clock in the morning, I, I knew at that point I was gonna do it. I was still feeling really, really strong. Uh, we had loads of oxygen because we'd climbed so fast and I wasn't on a particularly high flow rate. You can vary the oxygen on how you feel. And I, I, I had very little, so I had a good tank of oxygen. Um, and from there, it's the summit ridge. And so I led the route, Pemba just behind me. 
across the summit ridge up to the summit. And, and it's often the case with big mountains, you don't actually see the summit until you actually arrive at it. And that's usually the most arduous part, that last section, just trudging, putting one foot in front of the other. And it feels like eternity, uh, but you get there. And it's like most things, if you keep going, you get there. And I knew I'd arrived um, when I hit this mound of snow and ice. And it was covered into bed and prayer flags. And it was like, I've done it. I'm standing on the top of the world. And it was about at this point, it's about 4.30, quarter to five in the morning. And the sun was just coming up. And I had a little niggle. I'd had a niggle for about an hour, which was my vision. I thought, oh, it'll be fine when the sun comes up. But when the sun came up, it wasn't fine. I remember looking out to my right-hand side across Tibet, expecting to see the most beautiful view in the world right the ultimate view and my heart just sank because I couldn't see a damn thing uh it was like looking out of a, a steam through a steamed up window and I had no view I was like oh no I'm snow blind what the hell and um yeah it was it was one of those moments where you just think this is not good because on Everest you know if you can't get yourself down off that mountain the truth is you're not coming back down off that mountain. You know, no helicopter can fly that high. At this point, the other mountaineers were just starting to arrive up on the summit, but they can't help you. Um, at that level of oxygen, you've got about 20% available oxygen on the summit of Everest. All anyone can do is put one foot in front of the other. Uh, so I knew what this meant. Um, and I'm sat on the summit with Pemba just on the right-hand side of me, and, and I grabbed hold of him. And he was, believe it or not, smoking another cigarette on the summit of Everest. So, uh, so I said, Pembala, I'm blind. I've done sun's on it to my eyes, I can't see. I said, take the video footage, so I handed him my phone. He then recorded uh, a, a little message from the top. I had all these great plans. I had a teddy bear in my rucksack um, that was gonna come and feature from the summit of Everest. But anyway, that all got skyboshed. It was a case of a quick one minute video. And then we had to get off this thing. Um, and the vision I had, I could make out an outline of Pemba and he had bright yellow boots on and I could make out these kind of yellow blobs. So I put Pemba in front of me. He was managing my safety line and I was trying to put my feet. I also had yellow boots. So it was a case of putting my yellow blobs in his yellow blobs. And we had to reverse our steps back across the summit ridge. And and initially we were really quite poor. I mean, we were basically like dumb and dumb and dumber um, trying to head back across this ridge. And, and, and I remember I fell off the thing three times, sliding down, had to put a break in, climb back up to Pemba. Uh, and I remember on the third time thinking, oh, this is just hopeless. Like, you know, I'm not gonna get off this thing. And it's quite interesting what goes through your head at these times. I said, were you really panicked? Well, not really. I was thinking at that point, Firstly, how am I going to talk Pembrin to going down? Because he's such a loyal friend. He'd probably stay up there with me. So I was like, right, I needed to plan the conversation with Pemba. And I was also thinking, oh, this is dreadful because if I'm not going to get back down, you know, I've got loads of oxygen. I feel pretty strong other than the fact I can't see. Um, I'm going to be up here for hours before the inevitable happens. So um, this isn't going to be a quick end. Uh, but anyway, I, at that point, you know, I, I genuinely did need a miracle. And the extraordinary thing is the miracle came. I don't know why, but I had this thought flashed into my head. A blind person's climbed Everest. I don't know where it came from. I must have read it, you know, many moons ago. And it's true, a blind person has climbed Everest. I think it was in 2003. 
admittedly with a huge amount of Sherpa support. You know, this guy was completely aided up there. But just knowing that it could be done, the predicament I was in, somebody else had been there and they'd got back down from that point, really changed everything. Completely changed my mindset. I went from just being in a state of absolute despair to a state of hope. And I remember calling to Pemba going, come on, Pemba, let's give it one more shot. And he led the way. I followed him. And over time, we got better and better at this blind climbing game. I had a little incident at the notorious Hillary Step. This is the steepest section on Summit Ridge. I don't know whether Pemba was maybe smoking a cigarette or something. But when I got to that, I literally fell down it, slid down this section landed in some relatively soft snow and I was unscathed again, uh, just unbelievable. So I picked myself up, did a little body check um, and was able from there to climb up to the south summit because you have to climb back up, which is something you could do without. And from that point, then you need, there's a lot of rope work. It's quite difficult getting back down from the south summit. There's like six, seven abseils you need to do. And that was playing on my mind at the time, thinking, how am I going to do this without my vision? But when I got there, the experience kicked in and, and it was all just like an out-of-body experience. I, I just abseiled down these ropes. Pemba found the next rope for me because I couldn't see them, clipped me in. Um, and we worked our way back down to this place called the balcony, which is the relative halfway point. Then from the balcony, you know, you've still got a huge day ahead of you. I had to get back down to my tent at the South Cobb. But even that is that tent sits at 8,000 meters. It sits in the death zone. And at those altitudes, your body is just gradually breaking down and dying. So you can't hang around there. That was literally a place to stop, get down a cup of lukewarm tea. Um, at this point, I grabbed one of Pemba's cigarettes and I had a cigarette. I don't even <laughs> smoke. Um, but having been through, you know, been through that ordeal, I thought it was uh, why not? So from there, then it was, it, there's still a huge day ahead. I needed to first get back down to camp three and um, getting back down to camp three was, was quite a task. And I remember on that journey, abseiling down one rope and, um, and I hit something on the end of the rope, something blocking me. And I'm thinking, at this point, my vision returned a little bit. I could see about three meters. I had a blurred vision of about three meters. Um, so I looked behind me to see what was in my way. And there was a, there was a mountaineer, dead mountaineer, just on the end of the rope, blocking, blocking me. And it was only at that point that I think it really sank in just how lucky I'd been, just how unbelievably fortunate I'd been to get off that mountain alive. And from there, um, the day just felt endless. I had to get back to Camp 3, didn't stop pushed all the way down to camp two in one shot. So yeah, it was since leaving camp three, I'd been on the go for getting on 36 hours. Um, I'd eaten very little. On summit day, I drank nothing at all. I took half a litre of water with me, but the thing froze within half an hour. I didn't drink it. And I remember getting back to camp two, it was just getting dark. Uh, and you're pretty delirious. You know, you've got a banging headache from the dehydration. You're absolutely exhausted. And I went for a pee. I remember going for a pee and it was black. I've never, you know, you think, oh my God, I've never been this dehydrated. So I drank endless cups of tea, um, got into a tent in a sleeping bag and pff, the lights were out. And that was, that was it. The following day, I mean, the thing with Everest is 
you get off the mountain, it takes six weeks to climb it, and then you get off it remarkably quickly. The following day, I had to go back through that notorious Kumbu Icefall for the final time back to base camp. Uh, and the day after that, I was on a helicopter back to Kathmandu, and a week after that, I was back home in the UK. So it's incredibly quick getting back from Everest once you've made the summit. Where do you get your inspiration from? And, and the reason I ask is you are listening to that, the type of person that thrives on the, the physical and the mental challenge, somebody that loves to push the mind and push the body to the limit. Where do you get it from? Um, that's a really good question. I think I've always been a bit different. I'd consider myself a bit different. I'm wondering if, you know, I've got a bit of ADHD, but I always have to do things. I, I find it very hard to relax. Um, and then that, I suppose I've realized in later life, yeah, I've always throughout my life tried to achieve, I tried to achieve things, been very goal driven always. Um, there's probably reasons for that. Uh, but what I've also come to learn is that if I just do this, it will be okay. If I just achieve that, I'll be happy. And that's not the reality, is it? And I, and I think as time has gone on, um, for me, it's the journey as much as the end goal. Uh, and if we take that in the context of Everest, I mean, standing on the summit of Everest wasn't a big deal, right? In the sense of I didn't see anything from the top. But having that dream, now that was important because having that dream took me on an extraordinary journey. And I think I've found that throughout my life, whether it's any of the summits or anything that I do, you know, quite often it, it, it would all, the ideas would all start, whether it's a beer down the pub or whether it's sitting around bouncing a few ideas. And I was one of these people, I always talk about there's gunners and there's doers in this world. There's some people, they always talk a good game, but they never actually do it. I'm, one of, I'm quite the opposite. You, I've got to be quite careful what I talk about because once that seed gets planted, I seem to like almost go into autopilot and I'll, and I'll do what's necessary to make it happen. Um, and that drive is, is a blessing, but, but, but also it can be, you know, it can be a challenge having it as well. And I think the motivation that you talked about changes over time. Um, in my younger years, that motivation might have been much more ego driven. It must be might be a look at me, I'm successful, look what I can do. Um, but now I like to think that, that the motivation comes um, comes from a different source. Uh, right now, I'm very, very driven about environmental issues, about doing something to protect the planet because I've been incredibly privileged. Uh, my day job, I'm an expedition leader. Uh, so I get to see the most stunning, beautiful places on earth. I mean, absolutely blessed. But wherever I go now, it's impossible to escape the impact that us humans are having on the planet. And when we talk about things like climate change, well, most people don't really experience climate change firsthand maybe in the uk now with the floods they're being directly impacted by climate change maybe last summer when it was nearly 40 degrees they're starting to go maybe something's going on here but for us as mountaineers adventurers we do get to see it firsthand because for example when we go back to the alps you see that the glacier has retreated several meters when you climb Kilimanjaro, I've been climbing Kilimanjaro, I've climbed it over 10 times, um, going back, spanning over 20 years. Even in my time, I've seen that that glacier on the top is getting smaller. When we're now planning my next big adventure, which I'll talk about in a moment, uh, involves making a, a solo 
crossing to the North Pole. Well, we're having to plan now um, for where do we start this expedition because the ice is so thin. If you went back 50 years, it would be a different proposition. So the world is changing. It's changing very fast and we need to do something. And for me, that is where my primary motivation comes from today. I'm driven to do things, not just to push myself physically and mentally, but also to do something to give back, to do something to support the planet, to make a tangible difference, to help educate people. Because, you know, it's it's no exaggeration to say that we are at the tipping point. We, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. It's not all pessimism, but we need to do something and we need to do something fast it needs to be high impact and it needs to happen now. And that's really, for me, my motivation is getting that message out there. Great point, Nick. Um, you mentioned in that last last little bit about your next challenge. So, Mountaineer, you've done three Ironman races, which, for those that aren't aware, is a, is a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile bike ride and a, and a full marathon. You've now got another goal, another challenge that's ahead of you, which is the goal of a lifetime. You want to be the fastest person to climb the seven summits, to reach the North and South Pole, and to roll the Atlantic Ocean. And you've called the project the 721. Can you share with us this challenge and, again, a little bit of, of why you decided to do it? Yeah, David, I'd be delighted. So, 721 challenge where to start i think the best place to start is my return to the uk having climbed everest and everest was the last mountain i needed to complete the seven summits and i remember at the time a lot of people saying right you're going to retire now uh you've achieved your goal you've achieved your lifetime dream is it time to hang up the boots um and on reflection i thought no it's not um firstly because i think coming back to goals and what goals really are, to me, is they're signposts. They're signposts to take you on a journey. I didn't want my life journey to finish on the summit of Everest. Hopefully, I've got a few years ahead of me still to go. And I want to enjoy the most extraordinary journey that I previously had. So I need, knew that I needed something else, something else to work towards. Because when you're working towards big goals, and you guys will know this yourself, that's when you feel alive, when you've got a sense of purpose, when you wake up in the morning and you say, yes, there's a reason to do this. You feel alive, you feel the fire in your belly. And that's what I like. I like feeling like that. So I needed something else to create that, to create that sensation. But also, as I said, starting to become a little bit less ego-driven was I wanted to do something to make a, a tangible difference. And I bounced a few ideas. I looked at the Atlantic row, I looked at polar crossings, and I worked out, at the time I thought it was a world first, to be the first person to complete the seven summits, ski both poles, solo, full distance. And what I mean by that, full distance, is for the South Pole, it's about a 56-day unsupported solo crossing of Antarctica to the South Pole. So this is a big, big, you know, uh, very challenging endurance event um, to get to the South Pole. Same thing with the North Pole and then rowing the Atlantic. Um, so I, I thought, well, okay, well, why not? Well, let's, let's do it. Why not? They can all be done. They're all achievable. I might fail. And, um, but I'm not so concerned about failure. And this is something else I've learned on the journey, that failure is essential to success. I mean, show me a successful person who hasn't had masses of failure. Uh, what's important to me is that 
being on a journey that you enjoy, being on a journey that you're passionate about. And this looked to me to be a great project. It was going to take a couple of years to do. Um, and, and, and this was where the World Land Trust come into play because I arranged a meeting with World Land Trust and said, look, I'm looking at doing something a bit stupid. Um, World Land Trust are a, a conservation charity. So David Attenborough is a patron, my very good friend and climbing partner, Steve Backshaw is the patron. And I sat down and said, right, what can I do? You know, here you go, use me in any way you like. And they suggested um, a nature reserve in Guatemala called Laguna Grande. And they explained to me that they were trying to buy 4,000 hectares of primary rainforest. And if they didn't buy it, the loggers were gonna buy it and it was gonna be deforested permanently. And a lot of people don't realize that primary rainforest is essential uh, in the fight against climate change. We need to protect our primary rainforest. Um, so again, I sat down and said, yeah, let's dedicate the 71 project to that, to fundraising, um, to actually make the land acquisition, et cetera, but also to use it as a platform to gain awareness, to educate people, not from a pessimistic standpoint, but from a place of optimism, not from a place of preaching saying, unless you do blah, 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 you're a dreadful human being, but rather look at it as guys, let's look at what we're doing. Are there some things that we can do on an individual level? Um, some changes, maybe switch to a renewable energy supplier, maybe think about eating plant-based food once or twice a week, you know, little things like that, thinking about our travel, writing to our MPs, let's get it on the agenda, let's start talking about it, but come from a place of optimism rather than pessimism. And that really was the birth of the 71 challenge. Um, now, the challenge was all on track. We launched it in, in March last year really excited about it. We had sponsors on board and within two weeks of the launch, obviously the pandemic hit, COVID, uh, and that's a story in itself. <sighs> Talking about inspiration and wanting to impact and influence, Nick, is it, it comes across so strongly in this episode and what you're sharing with us. Now, when you start to prepare for going across to the, doing the North and South Pole, you're going to encounter extreme weather conditions and that alone in itself is going to be a monumental challenge. So how, how on earth do you prepare for something like that? Because living in England, we don't have those extreme weather conditions. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's a great question. And for me, from experience, People often say, right, do you train really hard for these big expeditions? No, I actually do less training. If we take Everest as an example, um, I cut down on my training um, for the weeks leading up to Everest. I ate as much food as I could. So when I arrived on Everest, um, I was not in particularly good shape. I mean, just to give a bit of background, that's relative. I'm a, I do a lot of work in the mountains. I'm out and about a lot but I cut down on my intense training and I put on as much weight as I could. So I was 95 kilos, something like that when I started Everest with a bit of a beer belly. Um, but I know from experience, that's the way to do it because you've got to think about when you peak on these events. For me, I needed to peak on summit day, which was six weeks after arrival. So you've got plenty of time to get fit. On that polar crossing, there's no point in me turning up skinny as a rake with a six pack and then I've got to embark on 56 days of burning through 10,000 calories a day that's not the way to do it much better to turn up with should we say a little bit of excess on the body 
because you're going to burn through that. I mean, I lost nearly 20 kilos on Everest. So I had a six pack, but I had a six pack when I summited Everest, not six weeks before. The people that turned up in you know, incredible shape that had been training three times a day, um, they ran out of steam halfway through the expedition because they peaked at the start. You want to peak at, you know, in the middle or you want to peak at the end. Uh, so in terms of training, yeah, put on as much weight as possible for it. Make sure I've got some good, strong legs and a good, strong core. But most of the training is head training. It's starting to uh, program your subconscious mind as what's ahead. And I do that a lot. I, I, I can talk to myself about how hard something's going to be. Because the minute you go into something with the attitude, it's going to be easy. You're going to come unstuck. So I actually spend time programming my brain, right, this is going to be tough. This is going to push you. So then when you deal with those issues in real life, they're never as bad. They're never as bad. Uh, and when I take clients on trips, I'm taking people up, you know, I regularly take people up Kilimanjaro. When I first meet them, I say, guys, prepare yourself for a really tough summit night. You know, and I start programming them. So when it happens, they're ready for it. If you took someone and said, look, it's to walk in the park and then, you know, three o'clock in the morning when they're absolutely cooked, um, they're not going to have that will to go on. They're going to they're going to give up. But if they already know what they're letting themselves into, they'll be able to find and reach into further reserves. And I think for me, it's that mental preparation is so much more important. But when I'm out there, again, keep it in the day. Don't get overwhelmed by the enormity of big projects, because if you do that, if you overthink things, you know, you're just going to bog yourself down with just a thought overload. So I do try and keep it in the day. Keep it as simple as possible. Right. What have I got to do today? What have I got to do right now? Forget about next week, two weeks, three weeks down the line. As long as I manage today and I get through today well, I'm going to be well set for tomorrow and tomorrow will take care of itself. And that's very much my ethos going into these events. I mean, Nick, you, you've achieved some incredible things. And arguably on, on Everest, you shouldn't have come down. For you, speaking to other people, what advice would you give to somebody who is wanting to set off on their own mission, but they've been held back or have held themselves back from climbing their own personal mountain, whatever that may be? I think that's absolutely brilliant. So, yeah, and it's almost like what advice would you give your younger self or what advice would you give to somebody earlier on? I think the first thing, bit of advice is take time to actually make a list of what you enjoy doing and what you're passionate about. I see so many people striving towards goals that they actually their heart's not in it. I mean, a good example would be they're following a particular course at university because their parents were doctors and they thought they should be doctors or they should become accountants or what have you. Actually sit down and say, what am I genuinely interested in? That for me is always the starting point. What is my passion? And from that, then start making a plan that's going to take you in the direction of that passion, of that thing. And it might be, you know, your plan might be to climb Everest, but as a 16-year-old, well, what would be a first step? Go and climb Snowden. Go and climb the Brecon, Penavan in the Brecon Beacons. It doesn't matter that it's not Everest. It's the start of a journey that could get you to Everest. And it also doesn't matter if you don't ever climb Everest, because no matter what, you're going on a journey that aligns with your passions. And that, for me, is the most important thing. Um, because if you're doing something that you're passionate about, People talk about resilience. Yeah, you're going to have oodles of resilience because you care about it. People talk about endurance. You're going to have oodles of endurance because it's something you deep down want to do. And when the going gets tough, 
you'll have that resilience, you'll have that inner reserve to get through it. So that would be my point. Some other tips I would give somebody starting out on this journey uh, would be make sure you take the first step because this is where so many people fall over. They look at a project, they get overwhelmed and then they end up doing nothing. But the reality is you just need to start with one small step. So work out what that step is and take it because that one step is often the hardest. And once you've taken that, take the next and take the next. Something else that I would say is commit to whatever it is you're doing. So let's say, for example, somebody's dream is to run a marathon. What, would, what advice would I give to them? My advice would be, right, go and find the marathon that you want to run. Go home tonight and book it and give me a call in the morning. And they say, well, surely I need to do my preparation first. Surely I need to do my planning first. Absolutely not. Make the commitment first. Once you're committed, then start your planning, because I guarantee your planning and preparation is going to be much better quality once you're committed than it will be if you're not committed. Give you an example with the marathon one. Um, you might say, OK, I'm thinking of running a marathon in the future. I'm going to go running tomorrow. You wake up tomorrow and it's a rainy day and it's cold and it's miserable. And you look out the window and you go, no, I'm going to do it the day after. But had you booked that marathon, if you knew you were going to have to run 26.2 miles in three months time, I guarantee, despite the fact that that day was miserable and rainy, you'd have put your running shoes on, you'd have gone outside and you'd have done your training run. So for me, commit first and then worry about your planning and preparation. That's not to say planning and preparation is not important, but make the commitment to get it done. And that for me is it. And start that journey. Keep Keep an eye on how things are going and also recognize that your goals may change, that you're just on a journey in the general direction. Things will come at you. Opportunities will come at you. And that's great. So you might end up wanting to climb Everest and you end up on K2. You might end up wanting to run a marathon, but you end up doing a triathlon. It doesn't matter because you're still going on the journey that's aligned with something you genuinely deep down want to do. Taking those first steps. And uh, committing is great point. Now, final question, Nick, because we, we'd love to stay. Got loads of questions that we'd like to follow up with, but we're mindful of your time. If Nick always had to look himself in the mirror and he had to describe yourself, what would he say about himself? Imperfect, damaged, um, hard on myself, but also on a journey. And I'd be very willing to look myself in the face, in, in the eye now, in the mirror and have that conversation. To have that, I'd have now the emotional intelligence to be able to look at myself and self-analyze and say, yeah, I'm not perfect, but that's okay because nobody's perfect. And I think for many years, I've tried to demand perfection of myself and it's not a healthy place to be. So now I'm a little bit more relaxed about things. I'm able to look at things I've done in the past and things that you know, haven't worked out well, mistakes that I've made and, and see them not as a, a mistake, but see them for what they are, which is a, a learning um, experience. And secondly, I've made stacks of mistakes looking back across my life, but I'm starting to realize now that's actually really powerful because I can now relate to other people. I can use that knowledge that I've gained and that experience to share it with other people, to help them to relate, to connect. I can, things that I say, I can now resonate, will resonate with other people. 
So yeah, um, more than happy to look myself in the mirror, in the mirror. Um, and probably 10 years ago, I think I'd have struggled. Well, Nick, you're very fortunate to be able to do that now. We say you can look yourself in the mirror when you were in the ascent of Everest, going snow blind, not knowing where that was going to take you. Very fortunate where you've had that resolve and resilience to be able to see things as they are, not make them any bigger than what they are. Nick, last little bit. If any of our listeners would like to reach out to you how can they contact you that would be amazing so for me um if we could have as many people following the 71 challenge that'd be incredible uh we have a facebook page which is 721 challenge on facebook uh people can link in with me i'm nick hollis on linkedin uh, and we also have a website which is www.721challenge.com and we have stacks of information and update on that. But yeah, it's amazing when you're on these big arduous journeys, how much little messages of support mean. They make all the difference. So yeah, it would be fabulous if uh, if the folk, the listeners could follow me on that adventure. And also don't be shy. If you've got any questions, send them to me. You know, I'm a human being and if I, I find the time, it might take a couple of days to get back to you, but I will reply. So don't be shy in terms of getting in touch as well. Brilliant. Well, Nick, I know from from my dad and I, we're following you on the journey, and we'll be willing you on and pushing you on in this seven two one challenge that you've got ahead of you. And with the resolve and all the things you've been through, I'm sure you'll come through successfully. And we're just excited to follow what's next after that as well. Ah, uh, thanks so much, David and Keith as well. Thank you so much. It's been honestly, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, just working with you before this uh, and, and having a chat with you today. So thanks so much. Thanks for tuning into the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.